Welcome to the Come Follow Me podcast for teens and for parents of teens, a podcast to supplement your weekly study of the Come Follow Me curriculum with thoughts, ideas, principles, stories, and questions all geared towards helping teenagers better follow Christ through their teenage years. Hey everybody, welcome back to the show. I'm your host, Josh Downs. This is Come Follow Me for Teens and for Parents of Teens and really for anybody that wants a little bit of insight into the Come Follow Me material and curriculum that we're going through each and every week. And this week we're going to be taking a look at 2 Nephi chapters 3 through 5 under the theme, We Lived After the Manner of Happiness. Really quick before we get into things this week, just for any of those that have signed up for my Come Follow Me for Teens membership or purchased any of the study and teaching guides uh, in my storefront on joshdowns.com, just please know that if you have any issues accessing any of them at any point, in any time, at any way, that you can always reach out to me. Please let me know and I will get it taken care of. I'll figure it out and if needed, I will send you whatever you have purchased or requested uh, for you to be able to access. I want that process to be as easy and seamless as possible. So again, if you need help with any of that, please reach out to me. You can email me at josh at joshdowns.com or you can find me directly and message me on Instagram under joshdownscoaching. Whatever you do, just let me know if you're having any kind of problems and I'll get you taken care of. Now, this week's episode and the theme under it is one of significant importance because, well, it's all about happiness We lived after the manner of happiness is the theme. Being happy is one of the fundamental desires of each and every one of our hearts. There really isn't much that any of us wouldn't do to get it. There isn't much that we wouldn't give for it. Yet it seems to me that we aren't suffering from an excess of happiness in the world today, but from a lack of it. It doesn't seem to me that happiness is on the rise as much as unhappiness is. In my coaching profession, I don't hear near as much about the rising levels of happiness as much as I hear about the rising levels of anxiety, depression, and just feelings of not being good enough, all things born of unhappiness. And personally, I can't help but wonder, why is that? I mean, if you really think about it objectively, in the Western world, we have a higher standard of living than any humans have ever had before. We have better medical treatment, better food. In fact, I just had a burger from JCW Burger Boys the other night, and I can confirm that this is true. (laughs) We have better sanitation. We have more money, uh, more welfare services, uh, more access to education, as well as incredible opportunities for travel and entertainment and career opportunities. So many in just the middle class live better today than royalty did in years past. Yet, by and large, most people struggle with being happy. And the statistics show it's only getting worse. In any given year, studies show 30% of the adult population will suffer from a recognized psychological disorder. And for our young people out there, according to a recent CDC study on teenage mental health, more than one in three high school students had experienced persistent feelings of sadness or hopelessness in 2019 which was a 40% increase since 2009. And this was before 2020, which was one of all of our favorite years of all time. Imagine if this had been measured after that. We certainly seem to have a happiness crisis on our hands, to say the least. At a time in the world's history where happiness should be more accessible and available and easier to find than ever before, It instead seems to be less accessible, less available, and harder to find than ever. Which is why I really believe that the chapters that we're going to study this week are so important and so vital. It is all about, they are all about finding happiness and living after the manner of happiness. The background of this week's uh, material goes as, as follows. Reading 1 Nephi, you might get the impression that Nephi was somehow larger than life large in stature, both physically and spiritually, he seemed unshaken by the trials he faced, or at least that is what we might assume. While Nephi's faith was remarkable, his tender words in 2 Nephi chapter 4 reveal that even faithful people sometimes feel wretched and easily beset by temptations. Here we see someone who is trying, who wants to be joyful, but whose heart groaneth because of his sins. 
we can relate to this and to the hopeful determination that follows. Nevertheless, I know in whom I have trusted. While Nephi and his people learn to live after the manner of happiness, they also learn that happiness does not come easily or without periods of sorrow. It ultimately comes from trusting the Lord, the rock of our righteousness. Isn't that a great background to this week's study? I think it's important to put Nephi in kind of a human perspective because he does seem larger than life. Certainly, he is one of the most incredible individuals in Scripture that we will ever come across. Yet, some of his words that we'll study this week in chapter 4 give us an insight into who he is as a person and to the fact that he is human like the rest of us and has struggles and gets down and discouraged and makes mistakes and wonders at times if, if he's good enough. So make sure you get your marking pencils out and get ready because we're going to get into it. Now, principle one, the first thing we want to take a look at, and this is just a really neat caveat to this week's study. It's in chapter 3, verses 5 through 15. Now, I'm going to summarize the majority of these verses and, and kind of zero in on a couple key ones. But at the beginning or the top of this chapter, I have written just simply Joseph Smith. This is a chapter that is all about him. The words are directed from Lehi to his son Joseph, and I believe he's trying to help Joseph see the value in his name. One of the things that I, I love to do with my students whenever we'd study the significance of a name, or somewhere in the scripture where it discussed taking upon ourselves the name of Christ, I'd like to start by just taking them to one of those you know, baby name websites that, that you can type in different names and it would show you the meaning of it. And we just kind of go through class and different kids that would raise their hand and volunteer their name. We'd go and kind of search and see what the meaning was behind it. We'd have a lot of, a lot of laughs. Uh, there was some obviously very funny ones that are out there. But then I'd, I'd talk to him at length about the value of a name, that it's more than just what it directly means that the value of a name is what we build it to be. Through our reputation, through our choices, we create the value behind our own names. And, and I think that, that Lehi is trying to convey this to Joseph. He wants Joseph to see already the significance and the importance of his name by connecting that name to Joseph of Egypt and then later to Joseph Smith. And he references a prophecy that Joseph of Egypt gave regarding them and also Joseph Smith. And he points out a few things that would be great for you to mark. Things like in verse 5, that Joseph of Egypt truly saw our day. And that as a part of that prophecy, in verse 6, Joseph of Egypt said that a seer shall the Lord my God raise up. And verse 7, that he shall do a work. Verse 9, that he shall be great like unto Moses. In verse 11, that unto him will I give power to bring forth my word. All things connected to Joseph Smith. And then in verse 12, he references the coming forth of the Book of Mormon and the impact that it will have on the world. I would invite you to mark all those things in this verse that the Book of Mormon will do because it's another great verse about the Book of Mormon and I love verses about the Book of Mormon. Verse 12, it reads, Wherefore the fruit of thy loins shall write, and the fruit of the loins of Judah shall write, and that which shall be written by the fruit of thy loins, the Book of Mormon, and also what shall be written by the fruit of the loins of Judah, the Bible, shall grow together unto the confounding of false doctrines, and laying down of contentions, and establishing peace among the fruit of thy loins, and bringing them to the knowledge of their fathers in the latter days, and also to the knowledge of my covenants, saith the Lord. Now we've already talked at length about the power that the Book of Mormon has and can have in our lives, but there's another great verse to kind of put away uh, in your pocket, uh, to, in your mind, save for a rainy day when you feel a little distant from Heavenly Father or there's problems going on in your life or in your home or family. The promises of the Book of Mormon are real that there will be a confounding of false doctrine. It will help us to better know the truth. It has the power to lay down contention. I remember a story my father used to teach when he was a state president, how a mother was having a particular grumpy day, and she was letting everybody know about it, which mothers are justified to do. They have so much on their plate at any given time. But uh, they had just recently had a lesson about the Book of Mormon and, and how it can bring peace into our lives. And so this woman's young little daughter, I can't remember how old, probably no more than six or seven, 
at some point upon recognizing that her mom is having a bad day and is a little grumpy, goes up to her and says, Mom, I think you need to read the Book of Mormon. (laughs) It'll help you to feel better and help you to have a better day. To which she actually went and did. And she said, you know what? It worked. That is one of the great blessings that can come to us from reading Scripture. It has the power to lay down contention, to kind of soften hearts, to establish peace, help us to, to feel better. And then, of course, as it points out, bringing them to a knowledge of their fathers in the latter days, in many ways that implies just helping us know who we are, reminding us who we are, which reminder we all need from time to time, don't we? And then, as it also mentions at the end, it can bring us to a knowledge of the Lord's covenants or his covenant path. Those are powerful things that are referenced there in verse 12 that the Book of Mormon can and will do for us that we would do well to remember and certainly mark in in those verses. Now, after referencing the coming forth of the Book of Mormon through this seer that the Lord should raise up, there's a couple other things that are mentioned about him. In verse 13, it's mentioned that out of weakness he shall be made strong, which we certainly see happen with the prophet Joseph. And then in verse 14, and they that seek to, con- to destroy him shall be confounded. Again, which we can see over and over happening in Joseph Smith's life. I want you to just take all of this now into account and just imagine how Joseph must have felt and what he must have thought in reading through this chapter, in translating this chapter that is all about him. Uh, written roughly 2,000 years before he was born and referencing a revelation and a prophecy from Joseph of, of Egypt that he received at least another 1,000 years before that. But as amazing as that must have been for Joseph to experience, then imagine him coming across this next part of Joseph of Egypt's prophecy in verse 15, which reads, And his name shall be called after me, <laughs> and it shall be after the name of his father, And he shall be like unto me, for the thing which the Lord shall bring forth by his hand, by the power of the Lord, shall bring my people unto salvation. Not only was this chapter detailing all the things that Joseph would do, it also gave his very name. That his name would be after Joseph of Egypt and after his father, which it was, Joseph Smith Sr., Imagine reading that. Wouldn't, can't you just picture Joseph getting to that verse and then just having the Spirit hit him like a ton of bricks? Testifying to the truth that not only did God know everything I was going to do thousands of years before I did it, but he also knew my name. He knew what I was going to be called, and he had a hand in that as well. Is God in the details of our lives, young people? He absolutely is, maybe even down to the the very name that we have. I want you to understand that about God. This verse in particular just again testifies to God's omniscience, to just how much he knows and how much he is involved in our lives down to the, the smallest of details, to the very name that we're even called. Don't you think for a second that he doesn't know you, that he doesn't know your name, that he is not involved in your life? Because he is. I think it's worth taking a moment and just considering all the similarities that uh, you can see between the lives of Joseph Smith and Joseph of Egypt, where this prophecy originated from. In fact, Elder Maxwell on occasion said that Joseph Smith was probably first made intellectually aware of the special relationship that he had with ancient Joseph, whom we commonly refer to as Joseph in Egypt, when the prophet Joseph translated the third chapter of 2 Nephi. It was not until Liberty Jail, however, that the record indicates any public affirmation of this unusual relationship. In one of his last letters from Liberty Jail, Joseph wrote, I feel like Joseph in Egypt. I'm sure referencing being imprisoned unjustfully. Elder Maxwell continues that it was not an idle comparison, for it reflected an important verse in the third chapter of 2 Nephi. Ancient Joseph spoke of the latter-day seer, saying, And he shall be like unto me. And while we're not going to go into all of the different specifics, again, I think it's worth just contemplating for a moment as you go through your study this week how both Joseph of Egypt and Joseph Smith were similar. One example I'll give you is that you see Joseph of Egypt saving really all the known world at that time from physical hunger and from a physical famine that was going throughout the land. And ironically, in contrast, 
Joseph Smith was largely responsible for saving the world from a spiritual hunger and a spiritual famine that had been going on throughout the land for quite some time, accomplishing this through the restoration of the gospel and the church, and in many ways the Book of Mormon. Referencing back in verse 15, For the thing which the Lord shall bring forth by his hand, by the power of the Lord, shall bring my people unto salvation. Now, one other thing before we leave this chapter, which is all about Joseph Smith. Back in verse 6, I want you to notice again, what term does the Lord refer to Joseph as? Do you see it? I want you to mark it. Back in verse 6, Joseph of Egypt records that a seer shall the Lord my God raise up. Mark that phrase, a seer. I believe that that phrase will continue to take on added meaning and significance in the days ahead. Because in the world today, it is getting harder and harder to tell what is true and what isn't. And now with the rise of things like artificial intelligence, AI, it's only going to get worse. Which is why prophets and their words are so important and vital to us. In referencing these important men and leaders, we've adopted in the church the phrase prophets, seers, and revelators, which we refer to them as. And I know you're familiar with that. We hear it all the time. And each one of those titles means something different and significant as far as the role that they play in our lives. But in the Doctrine and Covenants, where the phrase kind of originates from, the Lord puts these words, these terms, in a little bit of a different order. And I want you to look at this. In Doctrine and Covenants section 21, verse 1, at the organization of the church, the Lord instructs the church to keep a record of it. And in that record, speaking to Joseph and the church, he says, Thou shalt be called a seer, a translator, a prophet, an apostle of Jesus Christ, an elder of the church. You see what term he uses first that he wants Joseph to be known as and by to the rest of the church? A seer. Prophet doesn't even show up until like the third one on the list. And young people, I want you to consider for a moment why that is. What is it that he wants us to know about these men by referring to them as seers? I think it's of great worth to consider what this prophecy in large teaches about God's omniscience and his concern with the details of our lives. He knew thousands of years before Joseph came here what his name would be and that he would even be named after his own father. He obviously took whatever steps were necessary to make sure that that was the name that his grandparents settled on for his father, and that his parents settled on for him. Again, does God know what he is doing? Does he know what is going on in your life? Is he in the details of your life? Maybe even down to the name that you've been given? I want you to know that he is don't you think for a second that God doesn't know who I am because he does. He knows your name. He is in the details of our lives. He may even be behind the reason that that name was given to you. This is how involved he is in our lives. And again, all of this points to the importance and the significance of having living prophets and following living prophets because that omniscience of God is best given to us through them. They help us to see what we can't. That is why he wants us to think of them first and foremost, not necessarily as prophets, but as seers. Elder Robert D. Hales taught this about the significance of living prophets. He said, We may not know all the reasons why the prophets and conference speakers address us with certain topics in conference, but the Lord does. President Harold B. Lee taught that the only safety we have as members of this church is to give heed to the words and commandments that the Lord shall give through his prophet. There will be some things that take patience and faith. You may not like what comes from the authority of the church. It may contradict your personal views. It may contradict your social views. It may interfere with some of your social life. But if you listen to these things as if from the mouth of the Lord himself, with patience and faith, the promise is that the gates of hell shall not prevail against you, and the Lord will disperse the powers of darkness from before you and cause the heavens to shake for your good and his name's glory. How did President Lee know what we would be facing in our day? He knew because he was a prophet, a seer, and a revelator. And if we listen and obey the prophets now, including those who will speak in this very conference, we will be strengthened and protected.
Just a, a great overall chapter about the significance of, of prophets in our lives, about the role that Prophet Joseph Smith will play, and just about God's omniscience and his power and goodness and his ability to arrange the very details of our lives. A couple of questions to consider from this principle, from this chapter. First would be, how do you feel personally about the Prophet Joseph Smith? How is your life different today because of him? How has the thing that the Lord brought through him, referencing anything from the, the church, the priesthood, the Book of Mormon, and others, brought you unto salvation? How are you a literal fulfillment of the prophecy found in these verses? How has the Book of Mormon helped you to know the truth in your life? How has the Book of Mormon helped you to eliminate contention from your life? How has the Book of Mormon helped bring peace into your life? How has the Book of Mormon helped you to better know who you are and where you came from? How has the Book of Mormon helped you better come to know the covenant path? How has the Book of Mormon helped you to better come to know Christ? Why do you think it's so important, personally, to look at prophets as seers? What is it that changes when we do? And how does this impact the way that we listen to and read their words? Now, for principle number two, again, we're going to take a little bit of an overview, an arching look at another big part of this week's material, which is chapter four, in particular verses 15 through 35. This section is referred to as the Psalm of Nephi. And a psalm is defined as kind of a sacred song or even a poem. And the reason it's referred to as the Psalm of Nephi is his writings in this particular point in time and this place are so personal and so heartfelt that it's, it's almost very poem-like, almost a, a song that comes straight from Nephi's heart, conveying his hurt and his pain, his joy and his hope, his struggles and his victories. We see him here in the light of being human almost better than anywhere else. And young people, that's what I want you to look for when you study these verses. If you're teaching these verses, this is once again a great place to just turn your students loose and just let them fish for themselves. Let them go in and find what phrases and principles and truths help them to see Nephi like they see themselves. The imperfect, struggling, holding on to faith and hope kind of person that we all are. Now here's a, a few things for you to look for, Mark, as you go through these verses in the Psalm of Nephi. First of all, in verse 15, Nephi points out that his soul delighteth in the scriptures and his heart pondereth them, which leads us to ask the question ourselves, how do we feel about the scriptures in our lives? Do we find delight in them like he does? If so, how and in what ways? And how do we ponder over them or how can we ponder them over them like he does? In verses 17 through 19, I want you to look for, have you ever felt about yourself the way that Nephi does here as a wretched man or woman? And do you feel bad about being so weak when faced with temptation and for the sins that are a part of your life and a part of who you are? Is that disappointment and self-loathing heavy for you to carry? If so, well, you can relate to Nephi and he to you. Verses 19 through 20, to help him with this, who does he give all of these things to? Who does he give the burden of sin to? Who does he give the, the struggle with temptation to? Uh, who does he give the, the poor feelings of self-worth and, and self-loathing to? And how does he give them to him? This is where we see Nephi's faith begin to overcome his fear, his trust in God over his doubt of self where he says things like, Nevertheless, I know in whom I have trusted. My God hath been my support. And then in verses 20 through 23, look what God gives him in return. Once he gives the Lord his fear, once he gives the Lord his, his self-loathing and self-doubt, his struggles, his sins, what does God give him in return? Read those verses and mark all those things. I want you to find them for yourself and then consider which of those things means the most to you. Do you notice that he has given him support in spite of his sins and weaknesses? That he has not just given him love, but filled him with his love? Do you know that God feels that way about you as imperfect as you are? And that he has and will confound your enemies 
that he has heard your cry by day and he will give you knowledge and visions in the nighttime, even when you're imperfect, as Nephi clearly is imperfect. Elder Brad Wilcox taught that some mistakenly receive the message that they are not worthy to participate fully in the gospel because they are not completely free of bad habits. God's message is that worthiness is not flawlessness. Worthiness is being honest and trying. We must be honest with God, priests and leaders, and others who love us, and we must strive to keep God's commandments and never give up just because we slip up. Elder Bruce C. Hafen said that developing a Christ-like character requires patience and persistence more than it requires flawlessness. I love that. The Lord has said that the gifts of the Spirit are given for the benefit of those who love me and keep all my commandments, and him that seeketh so to do. So glad the Lord threw that little caveat at the end. Some mistakenly, he said, receive the message that God is waiting to help until after we repent. God's message is that He will help us as we repent. His grace is available to us no matter where we are in the path of obedience. Elder Dieter F. Uchtdorf has said, God does not need people who are flawless, that He seeks those who will offer their heart and a willing mind, and He will make them perfect in Christ. Now, notice then how the tone changes in Nephi's self-reflection once he remembers that he doesn't need to be perfect to access God's support, his knowledge, his power, and his love. Verse 26, O then, if I have seen so great things, if the Lord in his condescension unto the children of men hath visited men in so much mercy, why should my heart weep and my soul linger in the valley of sorrow and my flesh waste away? and my strength slackened because of mine afflictions? And why should I yield to sin because of my flesh? Yea, why should I give way to temptations that the evil one have place in my heart and to destroy my peace and afflict my soul? Why am I angry because of mine enemy? Awake, my soul, no longer droop in sin. Rejoice, O my heart, and give place no more for the enemy of my soul. Do not anger again because of mine enemies." Do not slacken my strength because of mine afflictions. Rejoice, O my heart, and cry unto the Lord, and say, O Lord, I will praise thee forever. Yea, my soul will rejoice in thee, my God, and the rock of my salvation. Quite the different tone there from Nephi than at the beginning, isn't it? In playing basketball, or in any sport, I suppose, really, there is a natural tendency to lower our heads when we make a mistake or whenever we lose a game or fall short in some way. But a good coach recognizes that mistakes are a part of the experience and help us to become better. And he only focuses on them long enough to help us to learn from them. And the only reason that he would really get upset for them is when we allow them to keep us down, to hold us back and to keep us out of the game. I remember one occasion while playing basketball and and making a a bad pass and kind of lowering my head and running back a little more slowly because of the mistake that I'd made. My coach yelling to me, Downs, get your head back up and get back in the game. (laughs) And that's simply what Heavenly Father wants for each of us. He knows we're going to make mistakes. It's not about not making mistakes. It's about not quitting, not giving up, keeping our head up and keep going, keep moving, keep fighting. Nephi recognizes this and is telling himself that very thing. Keep going. Don't quit. I got this because God has got me. Elder Holland reminds us of this truth and invites us to remember this in a similar way when he says, don't you quit. You keep walking. You keep trying. There is help and happiness ahead. Some blessings come soon, some come late, and some don't come until heaven. But for those who embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ, they come. It'll be all right in the end. Trust God and believe in good things to come. Well, after changing this attitude and this focus in himself, Nephi then asks God for help, for more grace and more power because he recognizes that he cannot do it on his own, which is an incredibly important aspect of our personal growth and development to come to that recognition that in order for us to succeed, we need God. We need Him in our lives. We need access to His strength, to His power, to His grace. In verse 31, Nephi records, O Lord, wilt thou redeem my soul? Wilt thou deliver me 
out of the hands of mine enemies. Wilt thou make me that I may shake at the appearance of sin? I love that prayer. May the gates of hell be shut continually before me, because that my heart is broken and my spirit is contrite. O Lord, wilt thou not shut the gates of thy righteousness before me, that I may walk in the path of the low valley, that I may be strict in the plain road? O Lord, wilt thou encircle me around in the robe of thy righteousness? O Lord, wilt thou make a way for mine escape before mine enemies? Wilt thou make my path straight before me? Wilt thou not place a stumbling block in my way? But thou wouldest clear my way before me, and hedge not up my way, but the ways of my enemy. O Lord, I have trusted in thee, and I will trust in thee forever. Please help me become better, is his prayer, and the prayer of every single one of us, which is why I love one of the most repeated phrases in all of Scripture, Ask and ye shall receive. So keep asking, young people. Keep fighting. Keep going and you will make it because God will make you into something better, something amazing and something beautiful. As Elder Wilcox also pointed out, God and Christ love you just as you are, but they also love you too much to leave you that way. A couple questions from this. And, and by the way, in this particular section, one of the things that I'm going to do in my study and teaching guide is I will print out or have a printout of just Nephi's psalm. This is just a wonderful thing to just hand out to the students and have them mark in it, give them some pens, pencils. There's something about physically reading, holding, marking that just isn't duplicated on the phone. Certainly they can use that, but if it were me, I would hand them a, a piece of paper with these verses on it and have them go through and just mark there so that you can discuss in class or in your home these principles and truths. This particular section of verses is so important for young people to read because I know firsthand, having been around young people as in my profession and even now and going around and speaking to schools and mentoring and coaching young people, just how much they are struggling with these same feelings that Nephi is, is struggling with. Feelings of, of self-doubt and, and self-worth and not feeling good enough and not feeling like they can, they can do it. And I believe it's incredibly powerful and helpful for them to see someone that they, I'm sure, admire and look up to as much as Nephi struggling with those same things himself. But then to see Nephi come up with the different thoughts and principles and truths to combat those feelings that he struggled with, those weaknesses that he had, to help give these young people hope as well that they also can overcome if they just keep going, keep pushing, trust in God and ask for help and trust that he is there, that he knows them, that he loves them, and that he will help them in the end overcome those weaknesses and become all that they're meant and capable of becoming. Number one is, how do you feel personally about Nephi in reading Nephi's heartfelt words as he reflects on himself? How is it helpful to know that even the best of men and women have weaknesses, commit sin, struggle feeling good enough and get frustrated when they don't do what they know they should? How is it helpful to know that you don't have to be perfect to receive God's help and support and to access his power and love? And if we really know and believe this, then why is it sometimes that we choose not to pray after we make mistakes, when in reality it's those times that God wants us to come to him the most? And how can we remember just how much God loves us and wants to help us especially when we've made mistakes or made a poor choice. In what ways does Nephi's words inspire you to be better and to keep fighting? And how can you follow his pattern in asking for help, grace, and assistance from Heavenly Father? Will you make sure in your prayers to include asking Heavenly Father to make you shake at the very appearance of sin and to help you walk in his path and encircle you in righteousness? Why do you trust in God? And why will you forever trust in Him? And why do you think Nephi concludes all of this with the reminder in verse 35 that he knows God will give liberally to him that asketh? Like Nephi at the end of this chapter, what will you commit to do as a result of these thoughts, principles, and truths? Now, for the last principle, maybe one of the most important ones that we've kind of saved to the end, we're going into chapter 5, verses 1 through 27. 
and we did live after the manner of happiness. I want to start by asking you, have you ever cooked or baked something before that had a recipe for it? And if so, how did it go? Did it turn out okay? Have you ever forgotten uh, an important part of a recipe when you were baking or cooking something? And what happened then? Basically, how important is it to follow the recipe to get whatever that you are making to turn out the way that it is intended for it to turn out? Basically, how important is it to follow a recipe to get something right? Well, here in this chapter, after Lehi dies, Nephi takes his family, Zoram, Sam, Jacob, and Joseph, his sisters and their families, and anyone else that will go with them, and they separate themselves from Laman and Lemuel and the others. They go and establish their own society and community. They build, they grow, they multiply, and begin to settle the promised land. And in the midst of all of this, Nephi points out something very significant, a significant truth in chapter 5, verse 27, when he simply states, And it came to pass that we lived after the manner of happiness. So basically, chapter 5, the Lord is giving us the recipe of happiness, because in this chapter, Nephi shares many of those things that they did all throughout this chapter that leads him to end with that statement that we lived after the manner of happiness. So there's great value for all of us when it comes to finding happiness to search through this chapter, looking for those things that contributed to their living after the manner of happiness. And again, I know that's something that every single one of us wants. We want to be happy. So I'm going to invite each one of you to search through these verses on your own looking for those things that potentially can bring happiness. In fact, I would recommend that you do that before even continuing to listen. Look for some of those things on your own and see if you can find them and mark them. Um, If you're teaching, here's another great place to send your students into and have them pull out what they find. In fact, one of the fun things I used to do with this chapter was to hand out a 3 by 5 kind of recipe card to each student and have them write at the top, My Recipe for Happiness and then go into verses about 15 through 27 and write down as many ingredients as they can find. Maybe give them one or two so they kind of know what to look for, but then after giving them time and having them find at least four or five on their own, have them then share their ingredients with each other, adding any that they might have missed to their recipe card until they have a full recipe for happiness in their hand. Now, with that being said, here's a few things that you want might want to make sure to mark or to help your students see as you take them through these particular verses. Again, maybe give them an example of one before you send them in just to help them find some things for themselves a little bit better. But first off, we want to start with verses 5 and 6. And, and this is one that they probably won't catch, but this is one you probably ought to spend a little bit more time on. Young people, I want you to, to see this, which is why I'm going to share it with you. One of the the very first things that Nephi does as a part of his recipe for happiness is he separates himself with his family, his friends, and their families from his brothers and those that have aligned with them. He is warned that they are plotting to kill him, and so he leaves. Sometimes separating ourselves from toxic and hurtful people and places is okay. In fact, it's probably more okay more often than not. Heavenly Father needs us to help others, and He wants us to, but not to the point where others hurt us. It is okay, and even an important ingredient for our recipe of happiness, to separate ourselves from those people and those things that bring us down, that hurt us and can lead us away from being our best self instead of inspiring us to be our best self. Now, it can be one of the most difficult steps but also one of the most important ones. And next to that, that kind of goes hand in hand with it, is to surround ourselves with people that are just the opposite. It's important, like Nephi did when it comes to our happiness, that we surround ourselves with those that love God, that, that helped him uphold his standards. These kind of people made it easier for Nephi to follow God, to be himself, and to make better choices. These were the people that he loved being around that brought out the very best in him and made it easier to be happy being around them. Now, other 
possible ingredients that, that you might have found or that students might have found might include things like in verse 10, that we did observe to keep the judgments and statutes and commandments of the Lord. That goes without saying. Verse 11, how about animals? <laughs> Nephi references here that they had many herds and flocks of animals. Can animals add or contribute to our happiness? I think you'd have a fun time discussing that one with students. Verse 12, the scriptures. Again, in verse 12, the liahona or the spirit. Uh, verse 13, taking safety precautions to make sure that you feel safe. Uh, verse 15, the significance of work. Verse 16, the temple. Verse 17, creating something, using your God-given talents and gifts to be industrious and to create. Verse 18, the significance of freedom. Also in verse 18, you might find service in there. Verse 19, teaching others, not just keeping your talents, but sharing what you have with others. Verse 20, the significance of staying connected with and to God, quite the opposite to what Laman and Lemuel were now doing. Verses 21 through 22, again, not associating with those that will bring you down. Verse 22, you might see repentance in there. In verse 24, this is a big one, avoid idleness. Young people, I want you to see this and, and mark this. While, yes, it may be fun to, to play video games or to spend some time on your phone, different apps or, or things like that, a lot of that is just being idle. It's not really productive. And while it may bring some temporary kind of pleasure, it is not happiness. You will not feel as happy as you will being productive and contributing to something in a meaningful way. Verse 25, the significance of remembering God on a regular basis to help us to find happiness. And verse 26, last but not least, the significance of following those that God has given to us to lead and to guide us. And those are just a few that can be pulled out of there. I'm sure there's many more, but every single one of those would be worth considering, contemplating, even having a discussion about. Because in the end, every single one of us wants to live after the manner of happiness. Well, speaking of happiness, I'm going to share just one last part about it. It was interesting to note recently in a church news article that seminary, the seminary and institute program is, is making a little bit of a shift. In fact, I think it's a pretty significant shift. Will they still be teaching the, the scriptures? Yes. Come Follow Me lessons will continue to be taught in the seminary program. But one of the, the shifts that they're making, and, and I, I found out about this some time ago in talking with one of the, the leaders in the, the Seminary Institute program of the church, is that they're making a shift to also teach lessons on life skills. Important concepts about how we, we work, how we function, uh, things that will just help us to kind of face life, help our young people to face life a little bit better than what they are now. And I absolutely love that approach. There are so many great truths and concepts and topics that can be discussed and can be helpful for young people to come to understand. I sure wish that I would have had somebody sit down with me and teach me everything I could possibly learn about boundaries back when I was young so I wouldn't have to learn them uh, learn so much about them later in life. Uh, I'd love to have learned a little bit about self-care. I'd love to learn a little bit about different tools and things that can help me to deal with anxiety or help me to understand the absolute importance and significance of failure in order to achieve success. So many of these things just are kind of life concepts and skills that sometimes just don't get taught as powerfully as I think they need to be taught. Uh, with that being said, I wanted to end today with a little bit more about happiness. Just some basic concepts and truths that young people, you need to understand. Every single one of us need to understand when it comes to happiness and being able to find it and access it in our lives. All of those things that we've gone through will help and are absolutely fundamental to finding happiness in life. But there's a few other things that I think are important for you to know about it. According to an individual by the name of Dr. Russ Harris, who is the author of a great book called The Happiness Trap, he mentions that in order for us to find happiness, or for happiness to find us rather, that we need to first get untrapped by what we think happiness is. He mentions how happiness is often thought of as just simply feeling good. And so when we don't feel good, we then tend to equate that to unhappiness but that that isn't accurate. True, when we feel good, we equate that to happiness, but often feeling good is also associated with pleasure. 
with gladness or gratification. <clears throat> and these things are all temporary. And if that is all that we use then to define happiness, then by all accounts, drug addicts should be some of the happiest people on the planet if it's just about feeling good. But we know that that is not the case. What we are looking for is more than just the temporary. It's a state of being, something that is independent of pleasure and gratification. Dr. Harris points out that the far less common meaning of happiness is living a rich, full, and meaningful life. He says in his book that when we take action on the things that truly matter deep in our hearts and move in directions that we consider valuable and worthy, clarify what we stand for in life and act accordingly, then our lives become rich and full and meaningful and we experience a powerful sense of vitality. He says that this is not some fleeting feeling. It's a profound sense of a life well lived. And although such a life will undoubtedly give us pleasurable feelings, it will also give us uncomfortable ones, such as sadness, fear, and anger. And this is expected because, he says, and this is key, if we live a full life, we will also feel the full range of human emotions. That happiness isn't meant to be a permanent state of living but a state that can be visited from time to time. You see, we can't be happy without also being sad. And we talked about that last week with the law of opposition in all things. We can't truly appreciate the sunshine unless we experience clouds and rain. We can't know the joy of success without the, the pain of failure. We can't fully appreciate what it means to be loved without understanding what it feels like to be rejected. So we focus instead on living a life that is rich, full, and meaningful and allow these experiences to come as they may. Dr. Harris then points out that there are four myths that we have adopted, um, subconsciously probably in many ways, that can keep this from happening in our lives. And young people, I want you to listen to these and see if you become trapped potentially by any of these happiness myths. The first one is that happiness is the natural state of all human beings. <laughs> Remember all the things we've talked about earlier? Happiness is not the natural state. However, when we think that it is or that it should be, then it is easy to think that everyone else is happy but me, which then just creates more happiness. It's not the natural state. There's a wide range of emotions that we will feel and can feel at any given time. Number two, if you're not happy, you're defective, that there's something wrong with you. Again, that is not true. There are a host of reasons why we might be suffering from unhappiness, and that is normal and a natural part of life's experience. Again, bad days are meant to be experienced. You could not be happy without them. Number three is that another myth is to create a better life, we must get rid of negative feelings. That's not true as well. We need to learn to accept them, not get rid of them. We need to experience both the good and the bad. Whether we like it or not, we will experience both the good and the bad. There's just simply no escaping them. There is only learning to accept them together. And lastly, is that you should be able to control what you think and feel all the time. <laughs> well, go ahead, young people, and give that one a try. You'll most likely fail within the first five minutes of driving your car in public. None of those myths are true, but yet it can be so easy for us to get caught or trapped in that line of thinking. Young people, please understand that happiness in a lot of ways, it's kind of like the spirit. You can't force it. You can't just call for it on demand. What you can do is live your life in such a way that it will come to you in the right time and in the, the right way when it is right and when it is needed. And in many ways, happiness kind of functions in a similar way. Uh, most of the times, I cannot just flip a switch when I'm having a bad day and instantly be happy. I have to allow the full range of human emotions to go through me. I have to accept that sometimes I'm just going to be sad, that sometimes I'm going to be discouraged, that sometimes I'm going to struggle just like Nephi did, but that that's okay. That's a part of the experience. And if I can build my life after the manner of happiness, doing those things that will make happiness more easily find me, then I will experience greater happiness in my life. Those things that we've looked at today in chapter 5, that recipe for happiness, those things work. And the more that you do them, the more that you apply them into your life, the greater the happiness you'll experience along the way.
From just this past conference, Elder Gary B. Sabin taught us that I promise you that if we build our lives upon the foundation of Jesus Christ, value our true identity as sons and daughters of God, remember the worth of a soul, maintain an eternal perspective, and gratefully appreciate our many blessings, especially Christ's invitation to come unto Him, we can find the true happiness we seek during this mortal adventure. Life will still have its challenges, but we will be able to better face each with a sense of purpose and peace because of the eternal truths that we understand and live by. President Thomas S. Monson taught that when we keep the commandments, our lives will be happier, more fulfilling, and less complicated. Our challenges and problems will be easier to bear, and we will receive God's promised blessings. And then President Nielsen just simply stated, If you want to be miserable, break the commandments and never repent. If you want joy, stay on the covenant path. Now, a few key questions about happiness. Number one, how important is it for you to be happy? What is the difference to you between happiness and pleasure? Which one lasts the longest? Why isn't it possible to always be happy? What ingredients did you find in chapter 5 that resonated with you the most? What does it mean to you to live after the manner of happiness? Does it mean that by doing these things you'll be guaranteed to be happy? From this lesson today, where do you feel is the best place to start putting yourself in a better position to experience happiness? What things or people might you need to separate yourself from in order to have greater happiness in your life? Who are the people that you have currently in your life that build and lift and inspire you to be better? And how can you stay closer to them? And lastly, how has your relationship with Christ brought you increased joy and happiness in life? How has He picked you up when you were feeling down? Now, there's a lot in there from this week. I hope that this has been helpful to you. I hope that you found some great ingredients for your own happiness as you study this week. I hope it was helpful to see your own struggles and weaknesses in light of Nephi's struggles and weaknesses as well, and to see his resolve and his commitment to continue to, to push forward and to do his best, and I hope it inspires you to do the same. As always, please remember that the transcript and study and teaching guide and the Come Follow Me membership subscription, which gives you monthly access to both of those as well as an early release for the next week's lesson can all be accessed from the link in the show notes as well as on my website at joshdowns.com under Come Follow Me for Teens. And if you haven't yet left me a review, please leave me one. I sure appreciate all of your guys' support and I will continue to do my very best to make this a valuable resource for you. I hope that you have an amazing week studying and applying the principles and truths from this week's material. As always, please remember that that person is greatest and most blessed and joyful, whose life most closely approaches the pattern of the Christ, and happiest, I might add. This has nothing to do with earthly wealth, power, or prestige. The only true test of greatness, blessedness, joyfulness, there it is, is how close a life can come to being like the Master Jesus Christ. He is the right way, the full truth, and the abundant life, and he invites us all to come follow me. So let's follow him better this week and become better as we follow him. Until next week, everyone, I'm Josh Downs, and you've been listening to Come Follow Me for Teens.